I watched the uh, England-Sweden soccer game yesterday with my father-in-law here in North Gore. And it was a, a lot of fun. And spoiler alert, in case you haven't yet watched it and you're saving it to watch later, uh, England won 2 nothing. <laughs> and what made it extra special was knowing that my parents were watching it at the same time in Wales, my older brother was watching it in a pub in England, and my younger brother was tuned in in Malaysia. And I was with my father-in-law in North Gore, and my girls as well. Now, I wouldn't say that I'm crazy about sports, uh, but I do enjoy watching the games. In my 38 years, I've been known to watch hockey games, rugby matches, tennis matches, football or soccer matches. Uh, I've been known to watch Canadian football and American f- football games too. And I, and having watched my fair share of sports games, I've, I've decided that there are three types of people who tune into a game. In fact, when I list them, you'll probably think of people that you know that fit these stereotypes. Number one are the couch critics. Number two are the fair-weather fans. And number three are the faithful followers. So first you have the couch critic. This is the person who uh, who sits in their living room. They watch the game and they want to let you know that if they were on the field or ice, that they would have done so much better than the people out there. They have nothing but negativity and criticism for the players on both sides and for the referees as well. They know the game much, much better than anyone else and they can also play the game better. And they'll let you know about it. The question, of course, is why aren't you out there? Why are you sat on your couch? And of course, they'd never go to see a game though because that would be a waste of money. That's the couch critic. And of course, couch critics aren't limited to sports. You find couch critics um, or this type weighing on things like politics or music or theology or how the pastor preached on church, on movies, on TV shows. There are couch critics in every um, area of life. And if you can't think of anyone who is a couch critic, well, that might just be because the couch critic in your circle is, well, you. But no one's had the guts to say it to you because maybe you're a little bit scary. (laughs) Secondly, you have the Fairweather fan. And these are the people who watch the game if it's on, but they won't go out of their way to make sure that they catch it. If something maybe better is on, then you'll be sure that they'll be watching that. They've never gone to see a match, but they've seen their fair amount of games on the telly. And lastly, you have the Faithful Followers. They know the names of all the players and their backstories. They know the stats of the team and the history of the team. They would rather spend their money on season tickets than on less important things like food and rent. (laughs) And if their team plays away, then they're going to be there for that. They'll even go overseas to watch their team. On Saturday, I was a Fairweather fan. It was on, so I watched it. It was a good game, but I wasn't overly invested in it. First of all, because it was England and not Wales, but uh, but I did enjoy it. Now, I don't know who the couch critics are, because they're sat in their homes somewhere in the world, full of joylessness and cynical, scathing comments, watching to see where the mistakes were made and to offer their supposedly expert insights. They were probably watching the game on their own because their friends have wised up and they know not to watch sports with them. 
So I don't know who the couch critics were, but it's clear who the faithful followers were. They were the ones in the stadium in Russia wearing the blue and yellow for Sweden or wearing the white and the red for, for, for England. They had paid their way. They had taken vacation time just so they could be there. They were the faithful followers. So we have the couch critics and the fairweather fans and the faithful followers. Now, as I've been um, reading through the book of Mark um, and really looking into it, I feel that there's some kind of a sinister shadow that's been growing and extending its reach. I've I, I've known that the, that Mark's account of the gospel of uh, Mark's account of Jesus' life is true, but never before reading through it have I felt a sense of growing malevolence seeping through it as I read. I really get this strong impression that Jesus is attempting to set up his kingdom in in territory that's owned by the enemy. And that his presence is really not wanted by those who are in power. And that they will do anything in their power to stop his movement of renewal and hope. Jesus is living out Ephesians 6 verse 12, which says this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yes, his struggle is against human structures of power at the moment, represented by the Pharisees, but maybe behind them, somewhere there in the background, are these dark spiritual architects, led by Satan, who are standing their ground against him and trying to sabotage his every move, his kingdom building. And as as Jesus um, makes it clearer and clearer who he is through signs and wonders and through the words that he says, the resistance against him gets stronger and stronger and the darkness grows. And you start to get this sense, if you've not read through to the end of, of Mark, you start to get this sense that this isn't going to end very well. Now let's turn to Mark chapter 3 verse 1 where this tension is increasing and where this shadow of malevolence that was lurking in the background is showing itself more and more. And this human face of this growing darkness is the Pharisees. And it's these Pharisees who are the couch critics. These are the ones who are saying to Jesus, I'm watching you Jesus, waiting to catch you out and to prove you wrong. Mark Chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. It says, Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So Jesus is back again in the synagogue, probably probably in the town of Capernaum again, and there's this guy with a shriveled hand who appears. He's heard what happened to the guy who was possessed by an evil spirit and how Jesus healed him in the synagogue on an earlier Sabbath. And so he comes to try his luck. All eyes are on Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees are there now, and they are watching like hawks. They weren't there last time, at least they're not recorded, but this time they are there. They're watching like hawks, and you can cut the tension in the synagogue with a knife as this guy stands up. Because these Pharisees have already seen Jesus harvest grain illegally on Sabbath, and that's one thing. But to heal on the Sabbath um, in the synagogue 
in view of the Pharisees, well, that's a whole other thing altogether. Verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now, what Jesus does here is he cuts right, he cuts right to the chase. He doesn't ask this man what he wants. He, he doesn't forgive his sins like he did with the paralyzed man that got dropped through the roof. He doesn't even ask him his name. He doesn't say anything. All he says is stand up in front of everyone. And so with this guy standing up in front of everyone, Jesus then shifts his attention from that man over to the teachers of the law, over to the Pharisees, over to the watchers, and he asks them a question. And you can tell, being this kind of outside-the-text reader, that there's this massive setup going on here. We're able to see it, but the Pharisees don't see it. At least they don't see it yet. These couch critics believe that they've got Jesus pinned. Either he heals on the Sabbath and proves that he's a breaker of the Ten Commandments because healing involves work, or he tells this bloke to come back on Monday during office hours and turning this this lad away isn't the most compassionate thing that he could do at that moment in time. And so Jesus is caught between the rock of being a lawbreaker and the hard place of being uncaring. At least that's what the Pharisees think. Verse 4, then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now, if you've watched any wrestling matches, then you'll have seen those wrestling moves where that person looks like they're pinned and like they're not able to move at all. And then they're about to be, you know, tapped out and then... Suddenly, the per- suddenly they do some impressive counter move, and faster than the eye can follow, this person flips his opponent onto the map and holds him in a choke hold. Victory is snatched out of the mouth of defeat. Well, that's what's happening here. Except the people in this tussle aren't wearing spandex; they're wearing long robes. So Jesus has outmaneuvered the Pharisees, and they are pinned. So what are they supposed to say? You see, what Jesus has done here in verse 4 is that he's used their own language on them. They love, they, they love to use the law to trap Jesus. That's what they do. So Jesus appeals to the same thing that, that they regularly use to try to trap him. He appeals, appeals, appeals to the law. He doesn't say what's the right thing to do on the Sabbath. Or he doesn't say, what's the nice thing to do on the Sabbath? Or he doesn't say, what's the Christian thing to do on the Sabbath? He doesn't say, what's the Jewish thing to do on the Sabbath? What he says is he goes straight back to the law. He goes straight back to principles. He says, what is the lawful thing to do on the Sabbath? And notice as well that in verse 4, Jesus, he doesn't say, is it lawful to heal a shriveled hand or to leave a hand shriveled on the Sabbath? What he says is, Is it lawful to heal, to save life, or to kill? So what Jesus is doing at this moment is is the ante is being upped. He's taking this specific case of this man with the shriveled hand, and he's extending it to its logical conclusion, because what he's saying is that if this week you're unable to, to help someone or to do good by healing because it breaks the Sabbath law, then What's to stop you from next week or next month to leave someone drown because it's on the Sabbath and helping them would mean work? Or would you leave someone stuck under a rock, pinned there, because it's on the Sabbath? 
So where does this line of thinking end? Where, where do you stop? And so what Jesus is doing is he's calling the couch critics out. He's saying, okay, you come down to the field and play. You show me what you have. Verse 4, but they remained silent. I mean, what else were they able to say? They, they, they had no answer. And then verse 5 says, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. So what Jesus did at this moment is he gave them an opportunity to relent. At this point, they could have humbled themselves and conceded that Jesus had a point, that the law was all about mercy. Now, I've been at this place before as well, where I'm convinced of my own rightness. Uh, Then someone comes along and points out to me that I was way off track, way off base, and they give me a different way to look at things. And I know how hard is it, how hard it is to climb down from that position that I've created for myself because I fear looking weak, because I have pride. And sometimes saying these words, you know you're right, you have a point, is so hard to say. But this is what's needed. This is their chance, this is the Pharisees' chance to actually back down and to save a little bit of face. Jesus has extended to them an olive branch, a white flag. But what is their response? Verse 4, they remained silent. Now at this point, Jesus gets mad. He gets furious. If Jesus was going to be any superhero at this point, I would imagine him to be Hulk. He's turning green and that righteous anger is burning up inside him like lava, ready to spew out. And he goes, Jesus, smash! (laughs) You see, why he's so angry is that they're sat there safe on their couch, criticizing him, but not offering, not offering anything better. All they can see is what's wrong. But then Jesus' anger subsides straight away. Look at it in verse 5. His, his anger subsides and then he moves into deep distress at their stubborn hearts. His anger gives way to sadness in a moment. So when Jesus sees your heart, does he have a smile on his face or is he deeply distressed at your stubbornness? Does Jesus bring out and reveal your inner couch critic? And the good news is that it's not too late to come to Jesus and say, you know what, you're right, I've been a prize idiot. Would you forgive me? But according to scripture, unfortunately, often the hard heart only gets harder. So if this moment you know that you've been resisting Jesus, if you know in your head that you acknowledge Jesus as God, but it's never made an iota of difference in your practical, lived out life, then then you have to realize that you're as stubborn as you were years and years ago, but this is your chance to respond to him, to get up off that couch, to repent, to return, and to get in the game while you still can. Now, right before I move on, I want to point out something. Look at the range of motion, uh, the range of emotions that flickers across the landscape of Jesus' heart at this moment in time. He has anger. He has deep sadness 
and he has healing compassion all in that moment. And I think that this gives us an insight into the heart of, of God. Uh, as God looks down at our world, at our town, at our city, at your neighborhood, at our church, at your house, at my house, at my life, at your life, he sees all that is going on in an instant. There's nothing hidden from him. And so he's angry at those who are enslaving others, whether it's for, through religion or for personal financial gain. He's angry at the way people are sold for sex or babies are killed for convenience. He's angry at people who put profit over compassion. He's angry at those people who are abusing anyone who's made in the image of God. But he's also deeply distressed at exactly the same time that uh, at those people who are rejecting him, it breaks his heart, it really wounds him, and it hurts him. And at the very same moment that he's feeling both anger and sadness, he's, his hand is reached out in compassion, ready to touch, to restore, and to heal. Now I know that there are many times, more times than I would feel comfortable sharing with you uh, when God looks in anger at my sin, in distress at my stubbornness, but also with compassion, ready to heal and restore all at the same time. You see, God is the only one who can experience total and pure anger and total and pure sadness and total and pure love and compassion at the same moment without one overwhelming the rest. We aren't able to do it. If I'm angry with Someone, it taints everything. But with God, it's not like this. With Jesus, it's not like this. So in this split second, Jesus feels anger and sadness and compassion. Verse 5. He says, he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. So the man stretched out his hand and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might how they might call Jesus. Now, remember that shadow of malevolence that I talked about earlier. Well, this is it, that these that these Pharisees literally leave the place of worship where God was in the flesh, and they go and plot how to kill him. What started off as a question in their mind became frustration, which became anger, which became murderous rage. And who do they join up with? Who are their allies in this? The Herodians. Now, the Herodians, maybe you don't know who they were, but the Herodians were supporters of Herod. These, these were people who, who embraced the, the, the Greco-Roman way of life. These were people who were pro, um, who were pro the Greek-Roman way of life. They were in favor of Roman rule. And all of this, the Pharisees were set against with everything that they had. They hated the Romans. And that, and, uh, but the Herodians loved the Romans. And yet, isn't it true that the enemy of my enemy is my friend? So these pol- two polar opposite groups were united in their hatred against Christ. And I imagine that on this Saturday, that the Pharisees had no idea of the irony that they who called Jesus out for eating grain on the Sabbath and for healing on the Sabbath go out and start planning an assassination attempt on this most holy day, the Sabbath. You see, Jesus healed this man with a shriveled hand, but the hearts of the Pharisees were just as shriveled as they were at the beginning. They were unmoved. They were still sat on their critical couches. We then move from from the synagogue and we move over to the shores of the lake. 
the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his, his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judah, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. So after healing this man in the synagogue, Jesus retreats over to the lakeside, presumably to get some R&R. But now on the shores of this lake, the crowds are still flocking to him. Jesus' fame is spreading. So first, as we read here, there's a crowd from, from Galilee, which is that area, who were then joined by people from all over Judah, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from, from Edomia, which is in the south, um, from the regions across the Jordan, which if you remember our series uh, on Joshua, uh, that's, that's over to the east, and from Tyre and Sidon, which is the north. So he's like a, he's like a people magnet that just draws people to him, and they keep flooding to him. These are the fair weather fans. They know that they can get something from Jesus. That's why they are there. And so the couch critic says this: "I'm watching you, Jesus, waiting to catch you out." But the fair weather fan says this: "I'll follow you, Jesus, so long as it's worth my while." Verse nine. Verse nine says. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases with diseases, were pushing forward to touch him. Now, I love these little details which we see in Mark's account. As well as being a great communicator, Jesus is also a great planner. And so he gets his disciples to prepare a boat just in case he needs a floating stage that he can continue preaching from without being crushed by all of the crowds. And we're not told in Mark whether he used it or not, but it was there ready just in case. Verse 11. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to say, not to tell others about him. Now, once again, we're told that the evil spirits recognize him and they identify him as the son of God. And the irony here is incredible that, that the satanic forces who are actively working against him know exactly who he is. But those who are flocking to him for the miracles, they, they don't really get who he is. They only see him as a means to an end because they are the fair weather fans. And again, Jesus commands these evil spirits to not identify him just as he did in chapter 1 verse 24 and chapter 1 verse 34. Um, you see, the evil spirits, they actually believed in Jesus. James 2 verse 19 tells us this. It says, uh, even, it says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. And what that's saying is that this belief that the demons had was not belief enough, it was not saving faith. There's this guy called Alistair McGrath, and he says this, there is a world of difference between rational acceptance and personal transformation. And so I think that the demons would have been happy for the people to trust in Jesus or or to acknowledge Jesus or to believe in Jesus in the same way that they did. They would be happy if people understood that Jesus was even the son of God, as long as this truth only touched their heads and didn't migrate south into their hearts. 
You see, these demons love fair-weather fans. They, 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 they love people like this. And here in this congregation right now, there are fair-weather fans. People who follow Jesus as long as it's in their own interest, it's to their own advantage. But Jesus had other plans. He wanted to call people to true faith. He wanted to call them onwards and upwards. He wanted to turn fair-weather fans and couch critics into faithful followers. Not perfect followers or super followers, but faithful followers. He wanted people who would follow him, who would obey him, who would trudge after him and walk in his footsteps one step at a time. He wanted faithful followers. Remember that verse 7 tells us that Jesus withdrew to the lake and then the crowds followed him. Well, we don't know how long he was there healing people, preaching, casting out demons. But we know that his intention was to retreat, meaning that he wanted to get away from the crowds, but he was not successful. And so he tries again. He heads for for high ground this time, hoping to weed out the fair-weather fans. But this time, there's a difference. As he's retreating, he calls those that he wants to himself. Verse 13 says, Jesus went upon a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Now, we're not told what he was looking for. We're we're not told what the criteria was. And I think that the scripture is intentional in that, because if scripture told us what the criteria was, for us it would become some sort of a checklist. And so I think that scripture is purposely vague about the characteristics of those that Jesus was calling to himself. But it's safe to assume that it's people who were serious about his mission, who were serious about following him, and who weren't just after a quick healing or some sort of a pick-me-up. You see, he, he, he went from the bounty of the lake up onto the rocky landscape of the mountainside. He called them from the convenience and the plenty of life as it was up to the dangerous and barren landscapes of the deeper life of the disciple. And notice here that that the emphasis is on Jesus calling them to himself. He didn't head up the mountainside and look back and see who was following him. He called some to him, those that he wanted, which meant that there were some people that he didn't call. And so what, what we have to realize is that, is that the call to the Christ-centered life is primarily not a decision that we make. It's a summons that we respond to. Let me say that again. The call to the Christ-centered life is not primarily a decision that we make. It's a summons that we respond to. It's a call-up that we answer. We don't choose Jesus. Jesus chooses us and we respond. And what this means is that without the... The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we could not come. We could not respond. We need Jesus to look at us and to call us to him. And it's this call that empowers us and enables us to follow him in obedience. What I'm trying to say is this, is that we don't call Jesus and tell him that we're going to follow him. He calls us and we respond. His call is always the first move. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is the call, the call up the mountainside. Verse 14, it says, he appointed 12 
And so from out of this larger group that followed him up the mountainside, he then chooses 12. This is his inner circle. This is the 12 that he's picked out of the crowd. Now, the first thing to notice is that he didn't select his inner circle from those who were in the synagogue, the couch critics, and he didn't select his 12 from those who were still down by the lakeside from, from the Fairweather fans. He chose them from those who followed him up the mountainside, the faithful followers. Right down there at the lake, you can see people from all over the country, from Jerusalem, from, from, from Edomia, from across the Jordan, from Tyre and Sidon. This is north, south, east and west. The whole country is represented in this crowd. These are the descendants of the 12 tribes who settled there hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Then out of these 12 tribes... And I think the symbolism is intentional out of these 12 tribes represented there. Jesus chooses 12 people, 12 men, so that they can be with him. This is the first time that we see the, the, the twinkle in the eye that gives, in God's eye, that gives birth to the church. And this team that Jesus assembled, it wasn't the brightest and the best. This was a call of grace. Jesus wasn't looking to create a crack team of experts. He didn't look at the crowd and say, okay, I need someone for networking. I pick you and I need someone for logistics. What about you? And I need someone who can communicate. What about you? And let's think I need a recruiter. I think you'll be good as a recruiter. I need someone to update the Instagram, Facebook and Twitter accounts. I'll have you. And now for the treasurer. Well, you look honest and friendly. How about you? Judas, is it? Welcome to the team. This isn't how Jesus did it. So what were the criteria that he was looking for? Verse 14 tells us. It says, He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to, to drive out demons. How amazing is this? Is that Jesus looked for people who first and foremost would be with him. This was number one on the list. He was looking for friends. He was looking for people to spend time with and who he would spend time with. Secondly, he was looking for people that he could send out. There was nothing here about qualifications or, or certificates or skill sets. He was looking for people who could be with him and that he could send out. Now, last week I mentioned this new era that Jesus was ushering in. And this is his ground crew. These are, are the pioneers. These are the people who are going to blaze this trail. And he's resourcing them to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Which, which means that they have the necessary skill set to drive his kingdom expansion onwards. By, by first of all, by preaching the, the miracle of the gospel. And then by proving the miracle of the gospel by the miracle of signs and wonders. And so we already know that so far he's called James and John. He's called Peter and Andrew in chapter 1. Then we know in chapter 2 that he's called Levi, who's called Matthew. And now he completes his team. Verse 16. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means son of sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These are the people who, to whom Jesus looked at in that crowd and said, come follow me, I choose you. 
So we've got outspoken Peter. We've got Thomas who doubted. We have Judas the thief and the betrayer. This is not the winning team that we would necessarily put together. And then we have Matthew or Levi who's working for the Romans, who's oppressing his own people for personal gain. Uh, And he's been recruited along with Simon the Zealot, who was part of an underground resistance movement to stand against the Roman Empire. How could these two people be part of the same team? Because Jesus called them and suddenly his cause trumped their own cause. What this means is that for Matthew, this meant laying aside his lucrative career as a tax collector. This is like someone saying, I'm not going to work for the city any longer with all of the benefits and retirement and tenure and all that stuff. You're laying that aside and following Jesus. And for Simon, the, the zealot, this, this meant channeling the energy that he spent on his nationalism and the overthrow of the Roman Empire into the cause of soul winning. And so we know that Peter and Andrew and James and John had already given up fishing to become fishers of men. And so Matthew or Levi now gives up tax collecting to become a soul collector for Jesus. And Simon gives up stabbing Roman soldiers in the heart so that he can stab people in the heart with the message that God loves them. These two had to learn how to work together. Simon would have had to lay aside the loathing that he feels towards Matthew, while Matthew would have had to lay aside this patronizing attitude that he would probably have had towards Simon. And we haven't even mentioned Judas. Jesus sought Judas out from among that crowd, and he invited him into his inner circle. He invited him up the mountainside, knowing that later Judas's actions would lead to Jesus climbing another mountainside with a cross over his shoulders. And in, in, in chapter 2, verse 20, is the first reference that Jesus makes to his future sacrifice, where he talks about the bridegroom being, being, being taken away. Now, now Jesus is creating this team that will accompany him up to this grisly, gruesome end. He's putting the pieces in order. We have Peter, who said he didn't know him, who abandoned him. We have, G- we have Judas, who sold him out. And we have Thomas who doubted his resurrection. This is who Jesus is surrounding himself with. And so I can feel this shadow, this, this, this darkness lengthening. And yet with the exception of Judas, these are the people also who comprise the first cells of the fetus of the church. These are the people who will later be filled with the Holy Spirit and through whom miracles will be done, through whom the gospel will be preached and the church will be born. They're fishermen, they're tax collectors, they're political extremists, and God will grab a hold of them, and he will utterly transform them, and through them, he will utterly transform the world. But these men were utterly ordinary. They were dysfunctional. They were idiots much of the time. These are the foolish things of this world that God chose to shame the wise. This is the new kingdom that he's building, that he's ushering in. It's built on a bunch of fearful, faithless, treacherous, forgetful, weak, intimidated people. This is his twelve. And they're people like you and they're people like me. But just like them, Christ calls you and I to leave the crowd of fair-weather fans Those who only follow Jesus when they can get something out of it. He calls us to leave the couch critics, people who seem to have the spiritual gift of pointing out exactly what's wrong but have very little positive or helpful. 
to offer. He calls us to leave the fair-weather fans and the crouch critics, and he calls us up the mountainside to be his faithful followers, people who will ultimately follow him into the trenches, who will lay down their very lives. But that's not yet. Right now, he calls you. He calls you because you are wanted. He looks you in the eye, and as he says in verse 13, I want you. He says that you are not unwanted. As he calls you up the mountainside, he says that you are not unwanted. He says that you're not just a face in the crowd. The king of the universe, Jesus Christ, has summoned you to come up the mountainside with him. And he's called you to bring all of your baggage and your sin and your past and your regrets and your successes. He wants you to bring it all because he will deal with it. And then he says, as he says in verse 13 or or verse 14, I want you so that you can be with me. He tells you that you have a home, that you have a place, that you have a household, that you have a family, that you now have a place where you can be at rest. And that is with him. And lastly, he says, I want you so you can be with me so I can send you out. He has a goal in mind. He has a kingdom he wants to create. He wants you to tell other people that God wants them, that God wants them so that they can be with him. He he wants them to be with him so that he can send them out and so that they can then tell others that God wants them so that they can be with him so that he can send them out so that they can tell others that God wants them. This is how the kingdom of God grows. This is how God grows his family by by transforming couch critics and fair weather fans into faithful followers who simply know this with every core of their being, that Jesus wants them to be with him. This is where it all begins.